beginning at verse 11 this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse study in 2 Corinthians. It's been a wonderful study. It's going to continue to be a wonderful study for us, and uh, the Lord desires for us to glean uh, so much from our text here this morning. So, Father, we give you this time in the study of your word, and I just pray that you would just uh, right now help us to just open our hearts to you and our ears for, uh, to you, to the things that you want to teach us and show us this morning. And Father, I do pray that uh, this would be a time of, of instruction, a time of edification and exhortation. So we want to, again, just be attentive to uh, your word. We want to be attentive to the things that you desire to show us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the Apostle Paul, who was writing this letter to the church at Corinth, you recall that he had written a corrective letter, which we have in the scriptures known as 1 Corinthians. And in that epistle, we see that Paul was addressing several issues that were you know, really hurting the church spiritually. They were, first of all, a divided church, and so he addresses that. They were a church that was plagued with immorality as well as carnality. They were all mixed up about certain doctrines, and as a result of that letter, there were those who really began to question Paul's authority as an apostle. They began to undermine Paul's uh, ministry, and so Paul would write another letter to them that was corrective in nature. Now, we know that that letter was delivered by Titus, which Paul describes as being a hard letter to write to them. And as we saw last time in this chapter that Paul says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Uh, The letter that he wrote to them, that letter that we don't have in the canon of scripture, that letter would be lost, was another letter that was corrective in nature, calling the Corinthian Christians, no doubt, to turn away from sin. And Paul gives indication to us that it was, again, a harsh letter in a sense that he has to confront them on some very serious matters. And so he calls them into repentance. We know that the apostle, he knew that he needed to write that letter. He needed to say those things that, uh, that were inspired for him to write. But also, as we talked about last week, that Paul gives us a hint in verse 8 of this chapter that he had second thoughts about what he said in that letter because he says, I did regret it. He was afraid that the letter would really cause um, this, this hurt in relationship between him and the Christians in Corinth. And so Titus delivering that letter to them, he spends time with the Christians there at Corinth. He would eventually leave Corinth. He would meet up with Paul in Macedonia and give him the news on how the Corinthian church responded to that letter. And Paul rejoices that they had not turned totally against him and that that letter that he wrote to them would cause godly sorrow in them, which would produce repentance leading to salvation. That is, as we talked about last week, there is repentance, a turning to God, that would lead to a blessing of God in their lives. And Paul says repentance is not to be regretted. And one of the things that we need to understand and remember as Christians, that you will never, never regret repenting, turning to God. And as you do, you're going to experience the riches and the blessings of God. But the sorrow of the world, Paul would go on to write, inspired by the Spirit of God, produces death. You see, sorrow and repentance are not the same thing. You can be sorry for sin. 
Sorry that you got caught. Sorry that you're all bound up with guilt. Sorry that you're experiencing consequences for your sin, but not truly repenting. And there is a sorrow of the world that Paul writes that produces death. That is a death in your spiritual life, a death in your heart and in your soul. It brings despair to your life. And we used the example and talked about the example how Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed our Lord, he was sorrowful, he was remorseful that he betrayed the Lord, but he did not repent. He was sorry that the Lord was going to be condemned. He was sorry that things were beginning to become complicated and ugly, but he did not repent, and he was all hung up on guilt, and he ended up, as you know from the gospel narratives, that he ended up hanging himself. And so it is sin that will produce as Paul writes, a death in your life, that is, in your spiritual life. And it was Peter that on the same day as we talked about him, he denied the Lord. He cursed and he swore that he didn't know him. And, and it would be Peter, rather than being all hung up on guilt and, and going out and hanging himself like Judas, he would repent. And he looked to the one, and he submitted to the one, who hung on a cross for him and his sin. And you know that Peter would be forgiven, and he was restored and used of the Lord. If you weren't here, it was a very important truth that Paul's given us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, hey, Corinthians. And I'm sure that if he was here at Calvary Chapel, he would say the same thing. That I'm glad that I wrote this letter to you, you Corinthians, because it produced godly sorrow, which produced repentance, a turning to God. And you see, that would be the same message that he and the Lord desires for us to know that there needs to be a turning to him when we need to put away sin, when there's attitudes and activity in our lives that are not pleasing to the Lord. And as we do that, you will experience the safety and the blessing of God, and you will not regret it. And so Paul goes on to say, now as we pick up our text at verse 11, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, and what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So they didn't just say, well, Paul, we will consider what you've written to us about repenting, but they were serious about dealing with the issue. You were diligent in your repentance, Paul writes. You did it with zeal, and that is what real repentance does. It isn't an attitude of, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll repent next week or next month, or one day I'll just have to stop the sin. <clears throat> that is not repentance. Repentance says, I need to turn to God, deal with this sin with certainty and with finality. God is calling me to change direction today, now. Paul would write, now's the acceptable time. Not next week, not wait till next month. Paul says you have cleared yourselves in this manner because you have indeed sorrowed in a godly manner. And then in verse 12, Paul refers to one that he had written about that was doing wrong, to one that had suffered wrong. So some commentators and Bible scholars suggest that Paul could very well be referring to the one individual that was 
as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that was committing sexual immorality with this stepmother. And Paul, at that time, when he wrote that, that letter of 1 Corinthians, was telling the congregation that you need to deal with this situation. Don't just boast about what's happening here. Don't just overlook it, but you need to deal with this brother who is in sin. It's known throughout Corinth. It is a sin that it is not even named among the Gentiles. And so you need to deal with him, bring discipline to him, get him out of the church so that he might be isolated for the purpose of him repenting and being restored and forgiven, that he might realize the seriousness of his sin. So apparently, as we were reading in chapter 2 of this epistle, that's what they did. They dealt with the issue, they got him out of the church, but Paul says that he's repented, they let him back into the church, for he has truly turned away from his sin, the disciplined work, and now it's time to reaffirm your love to him. So we talked about that in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians a few weeks ago. So it could be the same one that Paul is talking about here in verse 12. And what Paul is saying here is that I dealt with this issue of immorality in the church to let you know that I care about you, that I care deeply for you. I think that there's an important principle here for us to ponder, and it's simply this. It's real easy, perhaps at times, not to deal with issues. As parents, perhaps we think that at times it is easier not to have to deal with their kids in certain areas, with certain issues, when it comes to certain sins. But it's not the right thing to do. And if you love your kids, and parents, I know that you love your kids, then as parents we have to deal with issues that they're going through and sin and carnality, uh, either with talking with them or disciplining them. Certainly in both, we talk with them, discipline them, raising them up in the ways of the Lord. And we've been ordained and we've been commissioned to do that as parents. We talked about on Wednesday night in 1 Kings chapter 1 that David, he's at the end of his life and he had a son that was being boastful and being arrogant, that raised himself up, exalted himself. He had a chariot and 50 runners before him, and he said, I will be the king, when it was God's will that Solomon was going to be the king of Israel. And Adonijah was one that had apparently, as the text tells us, as we read in 1 Kings chapter 1, that was, uh, that was a part of his life, just exalting himself. And it says that David did not rebuke him for this and for the things that he had done. And we had looked at David in 2 Samuel. Now as we move into 1 Kings, David at the end of his life, David was a great king, the greatest king that Israel ever had. He was a great warrior. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel, but he failed in the area of disciplining his kids. And because of that, it brought hurt to his family and it brought difficulty to his family. We know from 2 Samuel that he did not deal with his eldest son, Amnon, when he ended up raping his half-sister, Tamar. We know that he didn't deal with Absalom, and Absalom would end up leading this rebellion against his father, David, as you read there in 2 Samuel, as you go into chapters 14 and 15, and Absalom would try to usurp the throne of Israel away from his father, and again, it brought serious consequences to David and to his family, and Absalom ended up dying because of that. And we know at 1 Kings chapter 1 that once again, David ignored those issues that were going on concerning his son Adonijah. And it's going to eventually lead to his destruction. 
You see, Paul here, he says in this whole area of immorality in the church, yes, it's hard for me to write to you about that. I knew that it might cause there to be hard feelings, but the bottom line is this. I wrote to you about that issue because I care about you, and I want you to do well in the things of Christ. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Jehoshaphat. We'll read about him in 1 Kings. Jehoshaphat was a godly king there in Judah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But as we discussed when we were in chapter 6, verse 14, that instructs us a, a straightforward command of the scripture that says that as Christians we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And we looked at the example of Jehoshaphat, that even though he was a godly man, a godly king there in Judah, that he would yoke himself with unbelievers. And what we discussed was that that story of how he, Jehoshaphat, would yoke himself in this business venture with the king of Israel. His name was Ahaziah. And what they did is they built ships to go to Tarsus. And Tarsus at that time was kind of fantasy land and vacation land. And Jehoshaphat goes in with Ahaziah, who was a very wicked king, and says, let's build these ships. We'll, we'll send these ships over to Tarsus and send people over, and we're going to make a lot of money doing that. And those of you who are here for that study know that it turned out to be very disastrous for Jehoshaphat. When he thought that his ship was going to come in, what happened in reality is his ship went down. The ships were wrecked and crashed. And Jehoshaphat, even though he was a godly man, he wasn't always wise in that he would link himself to unbelievers. He did with Ahaziah, but also we know, as we read from 1 Kings, that he would link himself, in chapter 22 there, with King Ahab. Ahab was the father of Ahaziah, and Ahab, the king of Israel, was a very, very wicked man. He was one that led the ten northern tribes deep, deep, into Baal worship. He was Ahab, the king of Israel, had a very ungodly wife, a very wicked wife named Jezebel. They would build a temple to Baal there in Samaria. And so here's Jehoshaphat. He goes up to see Ahab. And we know the story. It tells us that it was Ahab that was wanting to do battle with the Syrians. And so what he does is he turns to Jehoshaphat, this, this wicked king of Israel. And he says, listen, Jehoshaphat, why don't we yoke our armies together, join in together, and let's do battle against the Syrians. And so Jehoshaphat, what he says is, well, let's inquire of the Lord. And Ahab, do you have anybody that can do that, that can prophesy for us? And Ahab, he boasts and he says, yeah, I got these 400 guys. And these 400 guys come before Jehoshaphat and Ahab. They begin to prophesy. They say that, you know what, go to battle against the Syrians. You're going to have victory. You're going to win. Uh, that, that Syria is going to be delivered into your hands. Matter of fact, one of the prophets made these horns, and he was acting like a bull as he was play-acting, saying you're going to gore, you're going to charge, and you're going to get the Syrians, and you're going to win in this victory. Well, Jehoshaphat's watching all of this. He's listening. He's seeing all this drama that's taking place. And he says to Ahab, I don't know about these guys. Is there anybody else that we can listen to? I know that these 400 guys are declaring victory, and they're doing it enthusiastically, but I don't know if I trust in what they're saying. Is there any other prophet that we can call on? And Ahab says, well, there is this one guy, his name Micaiah, but I hate him. I hate him. He never prophesies good things about me. He always prophesies against me. 
because Micaiah was a true prophet of God. And Jehoshaphat says, let's listen to him. So they bring Micaiah, and as they're bringing Micaiah uh, to the two kings, the messenger that is escorting Micaiah over to, to give that message to the kings, the messenger is saying, hey, Micaiah, you better say what the king wants you to hear. You better tell him good things. You better encourage him and exhort him and tell him that the Syrians are going to be defeated by you. Ahab's going to have victory. So Micaiah stands before the two kings. Nahab asked him, well, are we going to have victory? Micaiah says, sure, we're going to have victory. And I think that he clearly said it very sarcastically, because Ahab says, swear to me that you're telling the truth. He knew something was up. Micaiah says, okay, I'm going to give you the truth, and this time I'm speaking in the name of the Lord. You're going to get your clocks cleaned, and you're going to get wiped out. And you, Ahab, you're a dead man because you're going to get killed. So Ahab says, see Jehoshaphat, that's why I hate this guy. He never prophesies good concerning me. Listen, this is very important. Because you see, you can travel from church to church and from group to group to avoid issues. Oh, the preacher, he's getting a little bit heavy for me. They're a little bit strong over there. I want to go where they prophesy, where they teach good things. I want to go to the happy church. And you see, you can do that. You can go to a place where they always are teaching and sharing happy things. Matter of fact, you can always find somewhere where you are justified in your sin. But the problem is this. It leads to devastation. And you're going to get wiped out. And you're going to get your clock cleaned. And it won't be good. It would be Paul that, as you hear his heart, saying to this church that he loved very much, you have 10,000 instructors, but not many fathers. And he says, I am a father to you. And I am telling you the truth, bringing these issues up for you to deal with, because I care very much for you. I share these things with you because I want you to experience the riches and the blessings of Christ in your lives personally. And for you as a congregation corporately. And that's why I wrote to you, not just to be confrontational, not just to be harsh, not just to be in your face, but because of my affection and love and I care for you. Please remember that if I share something from the Word of God as we go through it, and we do go through it, and if you begin to think, well, that's kind of heavy, why don't you just say nice things, Pastor? I like to say nice things. I like to say happy things. But I'll tell you this, that I am given the responsibility to give you truth. And it's my heart and desire is that you do well in your walk with the Lord. And if I share the truth of God's word, I'm going to share it with you very honestly and with integrity. And if you're feeling like, well, you know what, I'm being a little pushy or harsh or confrontational, whatever, listen, I'm a shepherd, and a shepherd cares for the sheep. And I care about you doing well in the things of Christ. And these issues that the Lord is calling all of us to deal with, when he brings conviction to us, it's never to push you away. It's to bring you closer to him, that you might be healthy and full of joy in your life. 
So verse 13, therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly far more, uh, more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. So Paul here is just rejoicing and expressing um, that Titus, who had been in Corinth, and now coming and giving this report to Paul, he, he, Paul is pleased and, and, and thankful that the Corinthians, that they were responding favorably to the most part to Paul's letter that was corrective, and that Titus' affection for them is great as, as he saw their obedience, that there is a desire to repent. So Paul here is simply praising the Corinthian Christians. And now as we move into chapter 8, we read in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So as we move into chapter 8, Paul is going to be changing subjects here. In the previous seven chapters, as you know, Paul has talked a lot about his ministry and the comfort of God that has been brought to him in the difficulties that he experienced. But now here, as he begins to change you know, the subject, he starts to talk about giving, which he's going to be writing about in chapters 8 and 9. We know as, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, that this was the church that exercised the gifts. They were excited about spiritual gifts, but they needed to be exhorted about the giving spirit. They weren't a very giving group in the way that they should be, in the way that they could be. And Paul's going to be writing about other churches, particularly in that region of Macedonia, that region of northern Greece, north of Corinth, uh, Corinth and he's going to be telling the Corinthians about their giving. And we know from the book of Acts, and we also know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that the Christians at this time, the Christians in Jerusalem, were going through a very difficult time. <clears throat> they were going through a time of persecution. You see, the Christians there in Jerusalem were believing Jews. And, and as you came to Christ, you would be ostracized by your family as you came out of Judaism. You couldn't get a job in Israel. You were persecuted. You were made fun of. You were held out at arm's length. You, you were an outcast in society. So they were going through persecution. But also we know that at this time, there had been a famine that was in that area, a great drought. And many people there, the believers in Jerusalem, were experiencing great hardships financially. So Paul, as he's in that area of Greece, in his third missionary journey, was gathering a collection from the churches up in Macedonia, the northern part of Greece, which included the churches of uh, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Now the southern region of Greece was called Achaia, and that included Corinth, and, and of course the Christians there in Corinth. And Paul, he he's, was taking a collection from the Gentile churches to help the Jewish brothers the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, who were really going through a rough time. And it would not only help them financially, but it would also build a bond between the Gentile churches and, and the churches, you know, there in Israel, the, the church in Jerusalem, that were believing Jews. There was this kind of this rift that was between them. And you see that in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, that he would write saying, we're one now. 
We've come together as the body of Christ. And so that was a challenge for Paul. So he thought that as the Christians there in northern Greece are giving, that it's going to bring this bond together. It's, it's going to bring this oneness and that the Gentile churches truly do care for the, the Christians that are in Jerusalem. So Paul starts the chapter talking about giving here. He says, I want you to know what's going on up north and how they are giving. The churches of Macedonia, we continue to read verse 2, then in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I hear witness that I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. In verse 5 we read, and not only as we have hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Hey, I want you to know that you there in Corinth, how the churches north of you are giving. As we look at this text here this morning, I think there's some, some very important principles that we can learn from that will help us in our understanding when it comes to giving. First of all, we see that the churches there in northern Greece, they gave out of, number one, their poverty. They were going through deep poverty themselves. And then verse two, secondly, they gave generously and beyond their ability they give us a wonderful example of giving. I think that sometimes that we can have the mindset that the only ones that give generously are those who are wealthy, or those who have a lot of money. And that isn't always the case. These Christians of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and the other uh, Christians, they were going through a rough time themselves. And history confirms that fact. That what the Roman Empire had done is coming in and taken uh, much of their wealth away in that part of Greece. And we know that, for example, the church at Thessalonica, they were some of the first Christians that were persecuted in, in the early church. And there at Philippi, they were persecuted. Now, today what we can do is, is we have this mindset that only those who who have money and who have wealth give. And we can look today at uh, the famous you know, person who has a lot of money, the movie star, the sports star, or you know, the successful businessman, and they may give to a charity and it, it comes out in the paper and all this. And listen, I'm not being critical of their giving, not at all. Or I'm not saying I know the motive of their giving. But oftentimes they will give out of their abundance. And here, the point that I'm trying to make is that there is a group of Christians that are hurting in Jerusalem and they are receiving a gift that comes from a group that were hurting themselves. And Paul says, listen, they were giving in their own deep poverty beyond their ability to give. They weren't giving out of their abundance. And I would read this, and as I read it, I think, why would those Christians of Macedonia give in that way? And I think that the answer very clearly is found in verse 1. Paul says, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. The motive for them giving was the grace of God, the goodness of God to them. In their hearts, they were saying, God has been so good to us, given so much. His, his unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor is overwhelming, and we want to give because we have experienced so much of the grace of God. And Paul says, in reality, they were in deep poverty. 
So what I am trying to articulate this morning is this. People don't just give according to how rich God made them. They give according to the riches of the grace of God. And the more that a person experiences the grace of God, the more they will give to God. Sometimes it happens. I have people that will argue and they'll say, well, tithing's not mentioned in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it is never legislated upon us. It's not told to us. It's not a duty that we have to do. And usually people will argue that point as an excuse not to give. But you see, the truth of the New Testament is this, that giving is a privilege that we can partake of to express in the gratitude that is in our hearts for the grace that God has already given to us. I have been in impoverished areas of the world and with Christians that were in those areas, in Mexico, in northern Thailand, in Africa, and the people would give out of their poverty. And what was really touching is they would give to us. And they did it with great joy. And they did it freely and they did it willingly because they knew the grace of God and the goodness of God. Listen, if God has not done anything for you, if you have not experienced His grace, then don't worry about giving. But He has been good to us, hasn't He? And we have experienced His grace. In Luke chapter 21, it was the last day of, last full day of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus had been teaching in the temple area all day. The religious leaders kept asking him difficult questions, trying to trip him up and do him in. And they came to him and said, hey, is it lawful to pay taxes? And those religious leaders thought they were so clever. They thought, surely we got him cornered now. Because if he says that, go ahead, pay taxes, the people are going to be upset. They're going to turn against him because the people hated paying taxes to the Romans who were oppressing them. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, well, we got him then because the religious leaders would just go down and contact the local officials and say, hey, we got this radical leading an insurrection against Rome by telling them not to pay taxes, so you need to go and arrest him. So how was Jesus going to get out of this situation? The religious leaders thought they had him backed up in a corner, and Jesus said, as he borrowed a coin, give me a coin, and they gave him a coin, and he said, whose image is on it? Caesar's, then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God. And the people marveled at his wisdom. After that, Jesus gets up. He's probably on the southern steps of the temple that they've just excavated, where he did much of his teaching. He gets up, and it's getting late. The people are leaving the temple area and going home to where they were staying. And he would walk up on the temple proper there, and he would walk by the court of the women. In the height of the day during Passover, there would be thousands and thousands of people in that area. But the day being late, the area had cleared out, and Jesus looks into that area, and he sees a woman who puts in two mites in the temple treasury. And Jesus just got through saying, Render to God the things that are God. And now he watches a widow woman put in all that she had. She gave out of her poverty. And Jesus would say to his disciples, for all these out of their abundance have put in offering to God, but she out of her poverty put in all her livelihood that she had. She gave beyond her ability to give, just like the Christians there in that area of Macedonia were doing. 
They gave because they knew God's grace and they gave with joy and out of their poverty. And we read the book of Philippians, they were the most joyful congregation and Paul writes to them what is known as the epistle of joy, that is Philippians. As you just give generously, as you just give out of response to God's grace, you know what the result's gonna be? You're gonna become joyful. We see it in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 6. David, he's talking about the giving to the building of the temple. We go on to read in a chapter, then the leaders of the father's houses and leaders of the tribe of Israel, the captains with the officials over the kings, worked and they offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God. And the chapter goes on to read, and whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. Then the people rejoiced for they had offered willingly because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord and King David also rejoiced greatly. You see, when we give to the Lord freely and willingly, it produces a joy in your life and a joy in your heart. You'll be one that is rejoicing and that leads me to the second point that I wanna make, that they gave willingly, they gave freely there in Macedonia. Verse three, they were freely willing, employing us with with much urgency that they would receive the gift. It wasn't that Paul was there begging for money. He wasn't manipulating them, telling them, you know, and getting in their face, you need to give till it hurts. I think that when people do that, ministry leaders or pastors or evangelists, when they do that, it's an insult to God. He wasn't saying that God needs your money. I hear ministers and TV evangelists, and you see them as well that their whole ministries are built upon getting people to give to them, begging for money like God is poor. And we need to remember that God is not poor. In Psalm chapter 50, God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Paul wasn't begging for their money, but instead the churches of Macedonia were begging him. They were ploying him, hey, take the gift. We want you. With urgency they were doing that. We want to help these Christians. They're in Jerusalem. They may not have had a lot of money to give, but they really wanted to give. And they gave out a response to God's grace. They gave out of their own poverty and they gave freely and willingly. Now, if you're visiting with us, or even if you've been here at Calvary Chapel for a period of time, we don't talk about money a whole lot here at Calvary Chapel. Some of you, you may have been here for months and you're thinking, this is the first time this has come up. But we talk about it as we go through the scriptures, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And for 16 years that we've been a church, I've never stood up here and asked for money. And I'm not saying that in a boastful way. We've never taken an offering. Not that churches that take a weekly offering, that, you know, as they pass around an offering basket, that that's wrong. Not at all. It is very much a part of their worship service. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 26, we are told to take the first fruits of God's blessing, put them in a basket joyfully and thankfully on the altar. We do give you opportunity, though, to give by placing your offerings and tithes in the offering boxes that we have in the back of the sanctuary and there by the information desk. It is a little bit different world that we're starting to realize that nobody carries checks anymore. So we have opportunity for you to give online on PayPal that is very secure and for you to be able to give because people are saying, I don't carry checks anymore. It's all debit and all of this. 
And we want to give you the opportunity freely and willingly and cheerfully to be able to give. It was interesting that when we bought this facility years ago, some of you were here, we were very small at that time. We were praying about purchasing this building. We didn't say, hey, you got to give and we need this amount and we're going to be sending out letters to you. We didn't do that. We just sought the Lord. We're not going to send you a letter saying, you know, please send us your tax refund, please. <laughs> I want you to be able to give freely and willingly with a joyful heart. Folks, I understand that this is a very sensitive issue because of the manipulations and the push and the rip-offs and all of that that perhaps that you've seen or been a part of, churches, ministries, missionaries, have engaged in these kinds of things, and it's left a sour taste for many people. And I personally believe that many churches have just gotten away from simply trusting in God and putting their trust into instead fundraising schemes and hiring fundraising consultants. And I'm not saying that all fundraising is wrong. But I know for us here at Calvary Chapel that I've always said that where God guides, he provides. And if God ever stops providing, then we're not supposed to be here. And I really believe that. And I just want to be in a place where we trust God in providing for us. And, and, and you know what? He's been so good to us. He really has been. He has blessed us tremendously. He has been good to us and provided for us. And I am very thankful for your giving. To be able to give freely and willingly and generously. And I know that the Lord is blessing that. We have a board of directors that are responsible for the finances that as we go through it, we look at the finances and pray about where the finances are going to go. We, this last week, went through an audit. Now, it wasn't an audit because people are saying, you know, or not, you know, did you get in trouble? Don't think that. We go through an audit or a review every single year. We do it of our own accord. Because I want to make sure that somebody is coming in and a very good company that works with many churches will come in and they'll go over our books and make sure that what we're saying lines up with what their audit has to say, that we're being accountable to every single dollar that comes into this place, that we have those accounting practices and, and internal practices to where there's no deception or anything like that, and it is very good for us because I want to make sure that we handle the finances here with integrity and honesty, and that's why we do that. You see, I'm not an accountant, but I am responsible for the things that take place and, and, and the accounting that takes place here. And so we do that. We have people that we trust that are taking care of the books, and it's a tremendous blessing. And I want to be a ministry that we focus on giving, not just getting. Because freely you have received, freely you shall give. One of the things that we have done from the very beginning as a church is given 10% to put away for the Lord for, you know, a mission account. To be able to help people, to be able to send people to the mission field. We're sending people and helping them go uh, throughout the world and young people to be able to go. I'm so thankful for your giving so we can keep the lights on and keep the air on. Matter of fact, this week we had to put in two new units. These units up on the roof 
are so old. And, and finally, they crashed, the one in the children's ministry and the one upstairs. And we had to get two new units, and we were able to do that because of your giving to keep the facility going and, and to be able to, to keep things to where we can clean it and provide for things. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful that the giving is here so I can be on staff full-time and Pastor Jim and Travis, and it allows us to minister to you here and have people here. And listen, the staff here is a hardworking staff, folks, that are here constantly and continually because they love this ministry and they love the people that are here. And it allows me to be able to minister in the community as a chaplain for the sheriff's office and to teach, you know, Old Testament survey to high school students. And, and so that's what we're thankful for. And I pray that as you give, that you would just give willingly and freely. We're going to talk a little bit more about giving as we continue next week, but, but it's such a blessing to be able to give to the Lord. And I want to end with this, and then we're going to go into communion. That what my hope and prayer is, that your heart is to give, whatever it might be, not just about money, but about your time and your worship to the Lord, to give Him the first fruits of your lives. Because He has given us so much, hasn't He? He gave us His Son, who went to the cross and died for us. And now we have His inheritance because we are saved and we're forgiven. We're blessed people. How can we not give to the Lord to further the kingdom of God? Alistair Begg was on the radio, and he was talking about this very subject. And he says, we spend so much time in our lives talking about IRAs, and that's good. And and planning for retirement, but have you really thought about, we talk so very little about ERAs, eternal retirement accounts, that you would invest in the kingdom of God. And the Lord says, great is your reward. God is not poor, but he desires for us to give that we can do the work of the kingdom of God. I'm so blessed that we do that, that we can have the radio program on, you know, during the week. And I think some of you are probably here, aren't you? Because you've heard the radio. And just things like that for us to be able to give to this community along the front range. I, you know, one of these days, I'm just going to share with you the testimonies that we're hearing about people who are getting saved, hearing us on the radio, young people. And coming to the Lord and being blessed, having to stop their car in, in the middle of a sermon because the Lord touched them so deeply that they were weeping. And so that's what's taken place as we give, as we receive from you, as we give to others, furthering the kingdom of God and realizing that the Father gave us everything, the very best, and that was his Son. Father, we thank you so much for, for this time and your word and right now for this time as we come to the communion table and lord i just pray that um right now that you would indeed help us to continue to worship as we give to you right now our hearts lord we want to be giving people because you gave us your son to die for us on calvary's cross to give us hope a living hope not a dead hope and we know that when we do give, that it's for eternal purposes. And Lord, so we're thankful that we can do that out of response of what you gave to us, your son. Lord, I just want to pray as we do at, at every service, the opportunity for anyone to come to Christ. And if you're here this morning in the coffee shop or here 
in a sanctuary or listening to this message on the, the radio, that if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, He gave all for you. He went to the cross for you. Because you see, there was a wage that we had that was the wages of sin, which is death, the scripture says. Separated from you, Lord. You were separated from God because of your sin. And Jesus came freely and willingly. And with the joy that was set before him, that joy being you, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he died for your sins. And salvation is a free gift. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. And it's available today. As the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Will you open up your heart to Jesus Christ if you've never done that? It's not about being religious. It's about relationship. Coming into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you open your heart to him. And you pray right where you're at that Jesus, thank you for coming for me personally, dying for my sins because I confess that I am a sinner. And I come to you and I surrender my heart to you asking that you be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe that you died for my sins personally, that you were put into a grave and you rose again after three days and you're alive knocking on the door of my heart. So Lord, I want to be born again. And I come. And I surrender my heart to you and believe in you for the finished work of the cross. 